Your time right now is 6 o'clock, and welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, November 6th, 2023. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. In tonight's news... Democratic lawmakers have announced a bill that would fund universal, no-cost meals in all Wisconsin schools. The second phase of bus rapid transit is officially in progress. And in the second half, a conservation activist discusses the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program and the government's calendar in the upcoming days. This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Public Service Commission has approved a petition from Madison Gas and Electric to raise rates over the next two years, but at a lower rate than what the company requested. The average resident using electricity and er, electric energy will pay about $3 more a month starting next year. In 2025, the average customer will see rates increase by more than $5. MG&E sought a hike of 7.3% for the next two years in order to cover costs associated with new solar projects, grid modernization, and other capital projects. The Public Service Commission signed off on only a 5.7% hike last Friday, and along with that approval came a new 9.7% earnings cap for MG&E. The decision to institute an earnings cap was lauded by the Citizens Utility Board, which represents customers and small businesses in utility rate negotiating. Also last Friday, the Public Service Commission rejected an MG&E proposal to eliminate net metering for customers who install their own solar panels. That keeps in place a policy to compensate homeowners with solar panels when they generate excess energy and return it into the electric grid. The decision was lauded by several environmental advocacy groups, including Midwest Environmental Advocates and 350 Wisconsin, who argued MG&E's new proposal would put solar panels further out of reach for low- and middle-income Wisconsinites. Other energy rate decisions are expected to come from the Public Service Commission in the coming weeks. Align Energy, We Energies, Excel Energy, and Northern States Power Company have all requested that the Public Service Commission sign off on rate hikes for customers. UW-Madison officials and business leaders are pressuring the state legislature to fund a new building for the College of Engineering after the proposal was left out of the budget earlier this year. Officials estimate that the project would cost at least $53 million more to put off funding the building until the next budget cycle. Yesterday, that coalition took out a full-page letter of support in newspapers across the state. Executives at companies like Epic, Kohler, Milwaukee Tool, and Trek were among dozens of signatories from the business community. A new analysis has found that persistent forever chemicals known as PFAS are present in nearly three-quarters of shallow private wells. PFAS are a family of forever chemicals used in consumer products like nonstick cookware and fast food wrappers. They're also used in industrial applications like in many forms of firefighting foam. The survey was conducted last year by the state DNR, UW-Stevens Point, and the state's hygiene lab last year using federal funding. Researchers surveyed 450 shallow wells defined as no deeper than 40 feet. About 7 out of 10 samples surveyed contained at least one PFAS chemical. Of those contaminated, 99 out of 100 were beneath the groundwater limits recommended by the state. New drinking water regulations that went into effect in Wisconsin in 2022 require ongoing sampling of public drinking water systems. 
According to the DNR, Wisconsin is slated to have PFAS data for nearly all public water systems in the state by the end of 2023. Remediating PFAS in an area of active is an is an area of active scientific research. Currently, EPA studies suggest that several treatment options, while expensive, can also be effective. Those include using granular activated carbon, ion exchange, and high-pressure membrane systems. And speaking of PFAS, a coalition of activists who have been working to stop the basing of F-35 jets in Madison have turned their attention to the Dane County Airport. The Safe Skies Clean Water Coalition is calling on the Dane County Board of Supervisors to reject a renewal of the joint use agreement with state and federal authorities. That agreement would allow the Wisconsin Air National Guard and U.S. Air Force to continue using the Dane County Airport in exchange for providing full-time fire protection and crash services for civil and government aircraft emergencies. Without an agreement, Dane County would be on the hook to pay for those federally mandated services. Safe Skies Clean Water maintains that the agreement should be rejected for ongoing PFAS contamination that remains under investigation by federal authorities but has not been remediated and for the noise and risks posed by the F-35s now based at the airport. The agreement is under consideration at a meeting of the Dane County Public Works and Transportation Committee and that meeting started at 4.30 this evening. An advocacy group formed by former mayoral candidate Gloria Reyes is taking issue with the City of Madison's 2024 budget. The group titled Madison's Progressive Path Forward was founded by Reyes earlier this summer. In three emails since last Friday, the group has pushed back on the city budget, alleging that the mayor's budget proposal is irresponsible. One email alleges that services like snow removal and waste collection have been diminished as taxes and fees have built up. Another two take issue with the amount of one-time funding allocated in the coming year's operating budget. That underscores a a contention between Reyes and Rhodes-Conway in their fight for the mayoral office earlier this spring. Reyes has repeatedly alleged that the city's spending is financially irresponsible. Mayor Rhodes-Conway has countered by lambasting the Republican-led legislature for repeatedly starving the Madison of repeatedly starving Madison of funding and for capping the city's ability to raise its own money from property taxes. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway introduced her $266 million capital budget in September and her $404 million plus operating budget in October. The operating budget, according to an analysis, is record high and it could signal a coming fiscal cliff. Currently, the city spends around 17% of general spending on paying off its debts, According to the Wisconsin Policy Forum, that borrowing is projected to rise to 20% of the city's general spending by 2030. The city council is set to spend next week taking up the budget and last-minute amendments from Alders. Two weeks after announcing their intent to organize, employees at the investigative news outlet Wisconsin Watch announced today that their union has been officially recognized by the nonprofit's board of directors and CEO George Stanley. The agreement was signed last Friday. The union's bargaining unit will be comprised of workers from both the editorial and business sides of the organization as a wall-to-wall union representing non-managerial employees. In a statement, Stanley outlined that the new voluntary recognition agreement reflected the mission statement of Wisconsin Watch in building a strong and sustainable newsroom that reports on the stories that matter most. Journalists and staffers signed union cards with the News Guild CWA, 
Recently, the members of the Milwaukee Newspaper Guild voted unanimously to welcome Wisconsin Watch Union into their local to share expanded administrative and logistical resources. Students at Madison West High School peppered members of the Madison School Board with questions at a panel last Friday, reports the Capital Times. Top of the mind for those students, safety and sustainability. Students asked questions about gun violence and the district's behavior education plan. Also at issue, a recent proposal to install new LED lighting in every school building. And an issue perhaps distinct to West High School, parking enforcement at a school with little available parking for students. Areas A coalition of groups working to stop U.S. aid to Israel converged in downtown Madison this afternoon, the latest in a series of local rallies supporting Palestinians amidst war and human rights abuses in Gaza and Israel. The rally was led by the Milwaukee Anti-War Committee in collaboration with a bevy of other groups. Jewish Voice for Peace Milwaukee, Freedom Road Socialist Organization, Milwaukee Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, Students for Justice in Palestine at UW-Madison, Students for a Democratic Society at UW-Milwaukee, and Project RICO. Protesters converged at the intersection of South Butler Street and King Street. They were there to call on Senator Tammy Baldwin to demand an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. There were also there to urge Senator Baldwin to vote against aid for Israel and U.S. support for the military detention of Palestinian children and refuse money from pro-Israel lobbyists. That comes after the senator joined a coalition calling on President Biden in October to supply munitions to Israel, including Iron Dome interceptors. The coalition alleges that the senator has received almost $423,000 in lobbying funds from pro-Israeli er, organizations, more than her counterpart, Senator Ron Johnson. According to reports from OpenSecrets.org, more than half of that money is from 2018, the last time she ran for re-election. It's the latest in a series of public interruptions for the U.S. senator who's running for re-election next year. Last Friday, an event featuring the senator on the UW-Madison campus was interrupted by a coalition of Palestinian advocates who urged Baldwin to support a ceasefire, reports the Wisconsin Examiner. Areas near the UW-Madison campus were shut down briefly last night as campus and Madison police searched for a man allegedly carrying a knife near Langdon Street. An alert issued around 8.30 last night advised people to stay inside. It also described an alleged suspect wearing a tan Carhartt jacket and dark green sweatpants. The Daily Cardinal reports that it could be related to an individual being attacked and needing an ambulance, though it's unclear if that incident was related. And now on to today's top stories. A recent study from Healthy School Meals for All Wisconsin found that only 28% of Wisconsin K-12 schools prepare from-scratch lunches and less than 10% prepare a majority of from-scratch breakfasts. The researchers argue that to unlock schools' healthy meal potential, Wisconsin must invest in school food service workers with more available hours, better pay, and better benefits. Democratic lawmakers have announced a bill that would support those workers in addition to supporting local farmers. But in a press conference this morning, they prioritized the goal to provide universal free school meals statewide. WORT News producer Faye Parks has the story. 
This morning, Democratic legislators announced that they plan to reintroduce the Healthy School Meals for All, or HSM-4A, Act. If passed, the bill would guarantee that eligible schools across the state receive total reimbursement for free school meals. During the pandemic, the federal government funded meals, at no cost, for all students regardless of their family's income. The program was developed in order to address nationwide food insecurity, as many folks lost their jobs and students had to attend school online. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Wisconsin school districts participated in the program with just a few exceptions. After the federal funding ended last year, nine states individually passed legislation to continue free meals for all students. Wisconsin attempted to join that cohort, but the bill did not pass. Now, Democratic lawmakers are making a second attempt to pass the program, which they estimate would cost about $120 million. Under the bill, the Department of Public Instruction would use state funds to pay the expenses not covered under the Truman-era National School Lunch Program and the National School Breakfast Program, which dates back to 1966. Currently, the DPI covers only a percentage of that funding gap, offering reimbursements according to the number of meals served during the prior school year. Representative Francesca Hong is a Democrat from Madison, who's made food access and equity a core part of her platform. She says there are three tenets to this bill. First, to ensure that there is a free lunch and breakfast for every student. Second, to shorten the food supply chain and support local farmers. Third, to support the food service workers in schools through higher wages and increased benefits. We are here to say we should be banning hunger and not banning books. Democratic lawmakers presented the bill this morning alongside Madison area students and representatives from the Healthy School Meals for All Wisconsin Coalition, a partnership between dozens of local organizations. Bobby Gayette is the president of the School Nutrition Association of Wisconsin, one of the members of the coalition. Studies show that meals served in schools are the healthiest option of nourishment to children, and that research also shows that nutrition is directly related to academic achievement. Research aside, we can all agree that food is the energy that helps our bodies function. And how vitally important is this for children in a school day? She also says that healthy meals should be considered vital tools for education, just like desks, internet access, and teachers. Yet the meals required to be served in schools are done so with only a means-tested approach, which assess the financial status of a household and yet put a child in a physical situation that may result in inequity or shame. Caitlin Tarianen is the president-elect of the School Nutrition Association of Wisconsin. Studies have shown that approximately 25% of the students in Wisconsin don't qualify for free or reduced meals but they also don't have enough money to come to school with a healthy lunch they brought from home. As a result, many districts throughout the state have significant school meal debt, a cost that's incurred by school nutrition funding, which is taking away from opportunities for additional staffing, higher quality food, or equipment for the kitchen. Michael Gasper is the director of nutrition from Holman School District. He says that while Holman is fairly well off, with about 28% of its students receiving free and reduced meals, they still come across students that are not covered and cannot afford the expense. But I was standing by the cashier at our high school and this young man approached me and he said, sir, can you do me a favor? Can you, can you check and see how much money I have in my account before I eat lunch? 
he was deathly afraid that somebody was going to take his meal away or something to that nature. And so we looked and he was about $25 negative in his account. And he said, please, if, if you'll just let me eat today, I promise I picked up an extra shift at work tonight. I will bring money in tomorrow, I promise. And I want you to think about that for a second because here's a kid whose parents could afford to pay for his meal. But for whatever reason, I don't know what it was, chose not to. And that is certainly not that young man's fault. Though a similar bill failed to pass in March of last year due to a lack of bipartisan support, Democratic lawmakers, like Representative Kristen Shelton of Green Bay, say they're hopeful that their Republican colleagues will respond more favorably this time around. We're very lucky that Speaker Voss just this fall launched his task force on childhood obesity. There's been numerous conversations in that task force about school meals. So we see this as a real opportunity right now to continue to build momentum and truly have bipartisan support on a bill that will have significant benefits for all Wisconsinites. Governor Tony Evers added a free school meals policy and an increase in state breakfast reimbursement in his 2023 to 2025 biennial budget. But the Joint Committee on Finance removed both in May of this year. Earlier this summer, the Healthy School Meals for All Coalition and UW-Madison professor Jennifer Gaddis released the first statewide survey of the Wisconsin school nutrition workforce. That report found that of the approximately 5,089 K-12 school nutrition workers across the state, 94% were women and 88% were white. It also found that four out of five school food workers who were not managers worked part-time and that a quarter of schools across the state offered poverty-level starting wages for school nutrition workers. And only one school district in the state, Madison Metro School District, provided a job with a livable wage. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. It's now 6.24 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news here on WORT. The north-south line of Madison's Metro Bus Rapid Transit, or BRT, has entered the early stages of development. Last week, the city's Department of Transportation hosted a series of public meetings to discuss the project. WORT reporter Jess Miller attended Wednesday's Southside meeting to hear from some of the project's planners and from future BRT riders. Last week, Madison's Department of Transportation began a series of public meetings to discuss the proposed north-south line of the Bus Rapid Transit, or BRT, system. This is the second BRT project in Madison. The east-west line of the BRT is currently under construction and is expected to be online sometime in 2024. The proposed north-south line would start on Fish Hatchery Road in Fitchburg, connect with the east-west line downtown on State Street, and finish on Northport Drive on the north side. 
At last Wednesday's meeting on the South Side, Madison Director of Transportation Tom Lynch shared his hopes for the future of public transportation in the city. We would like our bus rapid transit systems to be competitive with the auto. You know, right now, um, every gallon of gas puts carbon dioxide <clears throat> into the air. And if more people got on transit, you know, we'd have more sustainable you know, transportation, we'd have less congestion. And so we'd like to make it a really competitive transportation choice. Some key differences between regular bus lines and bus rapid transit include dedicated bus lanes, transit signal priority, and enhanced rail station-like stops. Mike Chechvala, a transportation planner for the city who led Wednesday's meeting, said the North-South Line will provide BRT access to 97,000 people. Additionally, 19,000 car-free households within a half mile of the corridor, 6,800 people with disabilities within a half mile of the corridor, 33,000 people of color, 14,000 lower income households, 6,800 seniors and older adults, 10,700 uh, youths. And uh, the environment is a big reason that we're doing this. Uh, you know, for one thing, any improvement in transit gets more people onto buses, and hopefully they'll choose the bus over driving if, if the bus is more convenient and, and more reliable. Uh, but besides that, we're switching from diesel buses to 100% battery electric buses. Uh, so uh, they will have no emissions, essentially. They will have diesel heaters for the winter, but um, they will they will be, uh, for their propulsion, will be 100% electric. Despite the commitment to the environment, many of the meeting's attendees had concerns, particularly about the preservation of trees in the Park Street median. Chichvala said that they were determined to preserve as many of the healthy and mature trees on the median as possible. And we are, we are looking at every inch that we have. But others were cautiously optimistic. Lindsay Lee has owned Cargo Coffee on Park Street since 2002. His only concern? It's taken too long. But he believes the BRT will bring a much-needed sense of community back to Park Street. You know, I think it will be a much more pleasant street. And people like to be in pleasant places. Park Street, for many decades now, has not been very pleasant. The North-South Line is still in the early stages of planning and environmental review, but is tentatively slated to begin construction in 2026, with service beginning in 2027. If you'd like to attend one of the public meetings, there will be one on Zoom Wednesday, November 8th, and one in Fitchburg Thursday, November 9th. You can learn more at madisonbrt.com. For WORT News, I'm Jess Miller. The time is 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us. Last Tuesday, Governor Tony Evers filed a lawsuit against Republican state lawmakers saying a number of their recent policy decisions are unconstitutional. Included in that complaint is the GOP's decision to block 27 projects that requested funding through the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program, which was created in 1989 to preserve Wisconsin's natural resources. The Nature Conservancy is one, of, is one organization that's registered support for the governor's lawsuit. For more on the stewardship program and the governor's lawsuit, WORT news producer Faye Parks sat down with Alex Madorsky, the Nature Conservancy's Associate Director of Government Relations, earlier today. Thank you for joining me, Alex. Thank you so much for talking to me. What is the Nature Conservancy? What is your primary focus? 
So the Nature Conservancy is the world's largest conservation nonprofit. We are in over 70 countries and all 50 states. Here in Wisconsin, we've been conserving lands and waters since 1959, and we've protected over 230,000 acres of lands, waters, as well as many species and ecosystems here in the state. So what are some of the major environmental concerns in Wisconsin? What are you trying to protect right now? Right now, one thing we're really focused on is trying to promote natural climate solutions. If we want to get to net zero, lands and waters are going to have to be a critical part of that solution. When we look at the North Woods in Wisconsin and we look at other parts of the state's wetlands, floodplains that are a natural carbon sink, we really need to protect those lands. Otherwise, they're going to potentially be developed into things that contribute to the state's carbon burden rather than lessening them. So that's certainly something we look at when we look at protecting lands and species. We're also looking at growing the state's outdoor recreation. It's an $8.7 billion industry in this state. It's the fastest growing sector of the economy in our state. And it's really something that has only grown since the COVID crisis hit and people have really decided for their own mental and physical wellness. They want to get outside more. If we want Wisconsin to continue to grow, we really need to continue to grow the tourism economy. Can you give us the history on the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program? How and why was it started and what does it do for the state of Wisconsin? The program is named after two Wisconsin statesmen, Senator Gaylord Nelson, a Democrat who was the founder of Earth Day, and Governor Warren Knowles, a Republican who started the state's first land conservation program. Two conservation leaders, one from each political party, Similarly, when this program was founded in 1989, it had bipartisan support from Democrats and Republicans in the legislature, was signed into law by Governor Tommy Thompson. And really the goal of the program is to make sure that there are lands conserved in the state of Wisconsin, valuable species preserved and lands available for outdoor recreation. All lands that are acquired as part of the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program, which is a public-private partnership, nonprofit conservation organizations like the Nature Conservancy, for example, will approach the Department of Natural Resources and seek matching funds to acquire critically important conservation lands. So that's been the goal of the program. It's had strong bipartisan support since 1989. It's protected over 600,000 acres of land and water here in the state of Wisconsin. And so this matching of funds, it comes from the state's coffers, is that right? That's right. There is a rigorous process, an application process for competitive grants where different organizations, there's a few different buckets to the program. The one that we participate in is the Nonprofit Conservation Organization subprogram. There's a very competitive process, grant applications that you have to go through through the Department of Natural Resources And those funds can be distributed, and that's what has really made the program go, conserve a lot of land over the past few decades. 
but the process has really broken down a lot as we've seen more and more anonymous objections by legislators to Knowles Nelson stewardship grants being approved. And I think that's why you've seen the governor and the attorney general file this lawsuit last week. When you say anonymous objections, can you explain that to me? What does that mean exactly? Absolutely. So the Joint Finance Committee, which is the committee that controls really the state's purse strings, it's composed of members of the state assembly and the state senate, can, through the process created for the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Grants, any member of that committee within 14 days of the DNR approving a grant can object anonymously for any reason or no reason. They don't have to identify themselves. They don't have to state a cause. And what we've seen in the past several years is that's had the impact fundamentally of indefinitely blocking a number of worthwhile conservation projects for really no reason at all. As you stated, the stewardship program from its inception was a bipartisan effort. Can you walk us through the timeline of how that changed? Is this a more recent development? It is a more recent development. If you look back in the earlier years of the program, really the majority of the program, what you had is the overwhelming majority of grants that approved by the DNR went through the committee process with no objection, with no concern. When there were concerns, a lot of times legislators would approach the individual organizations seeking the grants and say, here's what we're thinking about the property values. We think maybe this is a little too high and you should accept a different or smaller amount for grants. Those negotiations were conducted in good faith and generally resolved fairly rapidly. What you've seen over the past several years is an increasingly high percentage of these projects have been objected to, and I believe it's over 257 days is now the period of time where an average grant that's been objected to takes in order to get resolved or to get a hearing. WPR published a report last week referencing 27 conservation projects that Republican lawmakers have blocked, all of which were part of the stewardship program. Can you tell us about some of those projects? Sure. I think if you look at some of the projects that are blocked up, one that's acquired a lot of attention recently, a lot of notice, Pelican River Forest a grant that would have done a lot to conserve great lands and waters, a lot of important habitat and recreation spaces going on in northern Wisconsin. That's one that's gotten a lot of media attention, and rightly so, because of the values it brings to the state, as well as the amount of acres it would conserve. But what you also see, if you dig into those 27 programs, those 27 grants, rather, is that a lot of those grants are pretty modest in terms of dollar amounts that are being sought and acreage that's being sought. And nevertheless, they're being anonymously objected to anyway. When we say blocked, and then you referenced it takes almost 300 days to resolve those blocks, does this mean it's not a permanent block? It's a roadblock to eventually getting this grant money? How exactly does that work? Would these 27 projects eventually come to pass? That's a great question. They're not permanently off the table, but what you've seen is that despite the fact that the statute says 
that if an objection is filed, that the Joint Finance Committee should hold a hearing on those objected to grants. Really, the committee has used this objection process increasingly over the past several years to indefinitely put projects on hold. So in other words, there will be an anonymous objection to the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Grant proposal, and rather than any hearing ever being held or any vote ever being held, it will simply sit indefinitely on the committee's docket without a hearing even being scheduled. And do you have an idea of what percentage of these projects are blocked? Is it pretty significant? It is pretty significant. I believe the current figure, and I would have to double check on this, is over a third of conservation projects and proposals are being blocked, depending on what part of the program you are discussing. If we're talking about the nonprofit conservation organization part of the program, for example, I believe the figure is actually higher. And so you mentioned that with these anonymous objections, lawmakers don't necessarily have to share their reasoning. Do you have any insight as to why some of these were blocked or is it is there just a lack of information on that? There's really generally an enormous lack of information. There's certainly a lack of information to the general public. And even when we're talking about folks and organizations who are applying for grants, really sometimes it'll take a lot of legwork and you're kind of operating on an honor system because these objections are anonymous. A legislator on the committee can choose to divulge to someone who asks whether they've made an objection and if so, why they've made an objection, or they can simply choose not to. And that's a function of the anonymity and the lack of transparency that exists in the process. Now, Governor Evers is suing several state Republican leaders, and TNC is in support of that lawsuit. Why is that, and what ruling are you hoping for? We're certainly hoping that the governor's lawsuit will be successful. The reason we're strongly supporting it is because the broken nature of the Joint Finance Committee process really has to stop and really has to change. And what the governor's lawsuit says is that the legislature through this process is really infringing on the separation of powers. They're exercising a legislative veto in a way that the legislature is not intended to have. And really things are being jammed up in a non-transparent way by legislative committees after funds have already been approved by the legislature for these projects in the state budget process. So we're supporting this because the broken process really needs to be addressed and because some balance needs to be restored to how the executive branch and the legislative branch operate regarding the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program. So what exactly would change if the governor's lawsuit is successful? Would it increase accountability? It would increase accountability. Basically, you'd see an end to this anonymous objection process. The statute under the governor's lawsuit, the governor argues that the statute itself is unconstitutional. This idea that we can have functionally permanent anonymous legislative objections to these very important conservation grants is really antithetical to the purpose of the state constitution, to the legislature's role, and to transparency in government. Whether we're talking about the stewardship program 
program or really any other issue. If you ask the average voter, hey, do you think one elected official should be able to anonymously and permanently sandbag a project that can contribute to clean water in your area, our spaces that can provide you hunting and fishing opportunities? The overwhelming majority of Wisconsinites are going to say, no, that seems wrong. And that's true whether you talk to a voter in Milwaukee or up north, whether they vote for Republicans, Democrats, or independents, people intuitively understand that's not how government should work. So what can listeners do to support your organization and the stewardship program? So they can go to nature.org to learn more about the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program. Uh, If they navigate to the Wisconsin page, they can learn about what it's done for people all across the state of Wisconsin in the past and what it'll continue to do in the present. That's something they can and should do. And I'd also encourage them to take a look at some publicly available data the Nature Conservancy has. It's called our Resilient and Connected Network, and it shows a little bit about how different lands across the state of Wisconsin are crucially important to all of the values I've just mentioned, whether it's protecting species, growing the outdoor recreation economy, tackling climate change. We can really map out just how important these things are in different parts of our state. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Alex. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. That was Alex Midorski the Associate Director of Government Relations at the Nature Conservancy's Wisconsin chapter. They're in support of the lawsuit that Governor Evers recently filed against state Republican lawmakers, arguing that some of their policy decisions are unconstitutional. Amongst those policy decisions, their choice to block 27 projects associated with the Knowles-Nelson Stewardship Program. It's now 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. It's Monday. Do you know what your elected officials are up to? As we enter November, there's much ado about budgets. On this week's edition of Forward Lookout, Dylan Brogan and Brenda Conkle discuss what's on the agenda of local governments in the coming week. With us now, it's Brenda Conkle. How you doing, Brenda? I'm doing good. How are you, Dylan? I'm just fine. Let's get right into it, and we'll start with Dane County. They have their final budget meeting. Is that happening uh, tonight? Started at six p.m. Yep, six o'clock. They're um, they're gonna get their budget done. It you know the county board has really uh, I think improved in its transparency, and a lot of times by the time things get to the board, there's not a lot left to discuss. So unlike the city council meetings that go two or three nights, I think they'll probably be done in a couple hours um, unless something unusual comes up. 
Um, but usually they've, you know, right, they've taken public testimony last week. And so they will just jump right into it. And unless there's some last minute changes, it'll be likely to pass fairly quickly. County wrapping things up. Yeah, well, we'll keep an eye on what happens with the, the zoo funding for that giraffe uh, exhibit. That's the only thing I really saw of any <laughs> maybe controversy, if you could describe it like that. But it seems like supervisors worked that out. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. All right. Tuesday, we have the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee. And, you know, they have a, well, some more agreements to to ship inmates uh, to other county jails, right? Yep. Iowa, Oneida, Rock, and Iowa. And it looks like they're extending them for another year. And then they're also going to be looking at the purchase of the Village of Windsor Municipal Building. Um, and that will be for the Sheriff's Northeast Precinct. Well, we have an interesting one that I haven't, we don't normally see uh, at 3 p.m. on Wednesday. We have the Dane County Landfill Number 3 Local Negotiated Agreement Committee. Hmm. There's been every once in a while one of these committees that pops up. Yeah, they're looking at site number three. They've got the agreement for site number two, um, and they are continuing to negotiate. I also saw somewhere that they were adding another municipality to the agreement, I think, as well. So... Um, it seems like there's constantly negotiations going on over the landfill. And then at 5.30 Wednesday, we have the Airport Commission. They're looking at some sort of land use lease, or maybe this has something to do with the election center? Um, do we got that right? They, they got two land leases that they're looking at. I'm not sure if they are um, anything unusual. So if you're interested in the airport and the PFAS out there and some other things. These may be of interest to some folks in the community, um, but they had a relatively short agenda and this was two of their items. Yes, and I was right because that Ale, that Ale Island Brewery that the county is buying for the new election center is on airport land. Uh -huh. So that's what made it uh, slightly more attractive to move it there. So looks like that's moving forward. Um, but let's jump now to Thursday at 5.30. It's the Health and Human Needs Committee. Anything of note there? And they got a couple more uh, JFF leases um, and uh, a lease at the Sun Prairie uh, Sunshine Place as well. And then they are also going to be looking at um, accepting uh, SAMHSA funding for the drug court programs, which is some federal funding for people with substance use and mental health issues. Let's move on to the city of Madison. Uh, already in progress at 5 p.m., the Landmarks Commission met virtually. What are they talking about? They had a couple items that were on their agenda that were getting referred to their next meeting, um, but then they'll also be taking a look at um, a project in the 100 block of North Breeze Terrace. They're going to be adding an addition and some exterior alterations there, and then another property at 3701 Council Crest. Okay, and then we have the 530, we have the City County Homeless Issues Committee meeting virtually at 530, and they'll be getting a report, it looks like. Yeah, they're going to be getting a report about car camping. Um, the county has done this report. Um, Melissa Menig did a really great job sort of going through, um, looking at what other communities are doing and figuring out what the need was here in our community and what might work or not work. So she'll be there to do a presentation on that. And then they'll be also getting uh, presentations from the city and county staff. On Tuesday, 4.30, we have the Common Council Executive Committee. So let's tackle what the leadership of the city council is doing before we jump into the full common council meeting at 630. So yeah, what's the executive committee up to? Sure, they're gonna be getting a, a report from the police department about how um, having somebody else, a third party transport people to um, Winnebago is going. 
So that can be of interest to some folks in the community. This is a new sort of pilot project to see how it's going. Um, and then they're also going to be discussing limiting their the amount of time that they can speak on each, each item and how many questions they can ask. Um, that's always a fun discussion because the discussion sometimes takes longer than what, <laughs> than what they normally do. And then they're also going to be discussing their elder pay increases for 2025. And then, like I mentioned, 630 Tuesday, Common Council meeting virtually and at the City County Building. They'll have some honoring resolutions and then they really jump into the executive operating budget, right? Yeah, they'll be having their public hearing for that. That. And so next week, I believe, is when they'll actually, I think amendments are due from the alders on Wednesday, and then the public will find out what they are on Friday, and then they'll be doing their budget next week. Besides that, they have, you know, sort of the the general uh, alcohol licenses, and then there's a project at 4716 Sheboygan Avenue, as well as um, on Boyer Street and Nelson Crossing in the first district. And then they're also going to be looking at some labor agreements um, that they have and then some changes to the employee handbook. And they will be also uh, signing a contract with uh, Destination Madison for doing tourism marketing. Let's jump now to Wednesday at 4.30. We have the Urban Design Commission and they have looks like a handful of projects that they'll be reviewing. Yeah, they do. Um, So they have a public building, uh, which is the Dane County Public Safety Communications Center, which will be at 3087 Luds Lane. I've never heard of that road, so I don't know where that is. They'll also be talking about the men's shelter, which will be at 1904 Bartulin Drive. Um, and then they have some other projects on Gorham Street, uh, the 3000 block of East Washington, on Portage Road, on the 900 block of East Washington, and also on Ellis Potter Court. Okay. How about the Board of Public Works? What are they doing? They're meeting virtually at 4.30. Um, they have uh, some sort of routine items, but they are going to be looking at greenway encroachments um, and the creation of a greenway privilege section. They're going to be looking at making some amendments to that. Um, so uh, this is for m- more of the outskirts of Madison where there are greenways and uh, people sort of extend their yards into them and often mow them as well. So um, the city's looking at how they can make that an allowable use um, while still maintaining the control they need to do to make it a greenway. Um, And then they are also going to be um, doing a couple assessment districts, one on East Wilson and East Doty, as well as on Harvest Lane. Besides that, they have some some contractor lists and some other routine items. What about 5 p.m. on Wednesday? A lot of Wednesday meetings. Uh, We have we have the Transportation Commission, which is looking at parking garage rate changes. So those will probably be going up. Yep. And they also have, um, this is the time of year when they do the signal priority list. So this is important to some neighborhoods who want really want to make sure that they get traffic signals in their neighborhood. So they have a, a whole process that they go through to determine where they might put in new, new traffic signals. And then this is one I don't see very often. At 530, the City County Schools Collaborative Committee is meeting uh, virtually. Was this the education committee or what the heck is this? It is. This is the first time I think that they're meeting as a city county schools collaborative committee and they changed their name. And so they'll be looking at the 2024 budget and getting some updates about that and um, making some recommendations about universal free drivers education for, for the schools. Um, so I think they're trying to figure out how they can get the state legislature to, to look at how to make that easier. 
All right, finally, what about the Board of Park Commissioners at 630? Uh, looks like we're going to get more info on the Imagination Center at Randall Park. That's been in the works for a while, and I know they're seeking public input. Yep, there's that. And then they're also going to be looking at the City of Madison Comprehensive Plan and how some of the changes may impact the parks there, as well as getting a presentation about the Golf Enterprise Program, um, which is you know the golf courses. Mm, okay. Are they going to shut them all down? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, one of these days. All right, Brenda. Well, um, thank you so much for updating us on what's happening this week in local government. If you want to learn more, just head on over to forwardlookout.com. Thank you, Brenda. Welcome. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Jess Miller. Special thanks to feature contributors Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. You can stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.